Greetings, Rays community. Brent coming in live from the home office in Rhode Island, which is very relevant as I welcome Tim McMahon, who is the vice president for University of Advancement at Marquette University. And I say that because uh, Tim and I reconnected in advance of this podcast when there was a post on LinkedIn that I shared that talked about how certain companies were really embracing remote work. Uh, while at the same time, I know many of you all in the higher ed community have been moving on from the remote work period, getting back to uh, a pre-pandemic normal. And um, Tim commented on the post and said, I couldn't agree more. And we're redesigning our campus home and maintaining a flexible work environment built on trust, collaboration, and a continued focus on performance and service of Marquette. Tim, welcome to the Rays podcast. Thanks, Brent. Good to be with you, and thanks for the invite. You bet. So we're going to dive back into that. I should also note that Tim and his team just virtually launched a campaign, a $750 million uh, campaign called Time to Rise, just a couple of months ago uh, as uh, the um, world was starting to feel like it might get back to normal a little bit. So there's a lot going on in Tim's world. We appreciate him taking time. So we are going to get back to your thoughts on remote work. Uh, but first, I want to ask you a little bit on your personal journey about the Tim who is considering his own college choice. Let's call it junior, senior year of high school. Who was that guy? Where were you? And what led you to Hofstra? Yeah, I, I am from a town on Long Island called Manhasset. If you've ever read The Great Gatsby, I always say it's the town between East Egg and West Egg. Uh, I was a baseball player, and I also joke, if you know Manhasset and you know Long Island, I was one of the nine guys that played baseball in Manhasset and uh, had a good career from a baseball family and had an opportunity to play at, Mar to play at, at Hofstra, not Marquette. We'll get to Marquette later. I had, had an opportunity to go to, to Hofstra um, out of high school and had a, a great experience. I actually had committed to Lafayette, and um, Lafayette, in, even now, is, it was a different opportunity from a price point standpoint. I was able to get some academic funds and an athletic scholarship that made the Hofstra experience both good on me and even better for my, my, my parents, and uh, that's how I ended up at Hofstra. All right, 95, favorite? 95 to 99. Did you play baseball? Uh, the whole time or part of the time? I was on the team the whole time. Some of my teammates would say I was a really good pinch runner, uh, but I was an outfielder on the program from 95 to 99. Well, then I'll just ask favorite memories, uh, and it doesn't have to be on the field, but favorite memory being a part of the baseball team. Yeah, you know, I think, you know, Hofstra has grown into a more residential campus, more residential university, but but back then it was largely a commuter school. It was kind of working its way towards that more residential environment. And so the athletic environment, the student athletes, not just on the baseball team, but across all of the programs really had a great community within each other. But I would say for the baseball team, it was more about camaraderie, you know, things, the bus trips to Vermont and to Maine. Uh, I would say my freshman year, we we played Maine in the last conference uh, weekend of the year. Maine always stacks there, at least they did at the time. I don't know if they have baseball anymore. They stacked their home conference games later in the season. So we had our last conference weekend at Maine. We drove back to Long Island and guess where the conference playoffs were held? Back in Orono. So we turned back and, and had two bus trips to Maine and back-to-back -back weeks. That, that's probably uh, a memory, largely a very good one uh, that, that I have still today, but just the camaraderie with the teammates and the guys on the team. 
And it sounds like the baseball experience was pivotal in ultimately getting you on a path that led to a career in higher education and eventually advancement. Yeah, well, you know, I'm a, I'm a first generation college graduate. My older brother was the first in our family to graduate uh, from college. So I didn't go to college thinking I want to be an athletic administrator. But when I was on the baseball team, I would work a lot of the uh, different, you know, games on, on the what they called sports facilities at the time. I would work the basketball game and sit 10 feet away from a young Jay Wright or work on the lacrosse, you know, games when we wouldn't have baseball and see John Dowski, uh, Tom Ryan with wrestling. But, but even beyond the coaches, the great coaches on the men's and women's side, I, I realized that there was a cadre of administrators that were making a career of this. And so as I got deeper into my uh, time at Hofstra, I realized, wow, this is a, something I could pursue. I could have a career uh, in higher ed, you know, and even then the, 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 the thought of being a fundraiser hadn't quite got to me yet. It was still through that facility experience, but it, it showed me that this is something that you can do, commit your career to. And it, it, it always turned back to how do I make it even better for those coming behind me? I looked at it as, as an opportunity to, to make something better. I had a great experience, but I thought, wow, if I could make a career in this, I could lead young men and women going from high school through college. It's a really formative experience for them. So that was one of the things that I realized during my career uh, that led me into more of a pursuit of athletic administration and later on fundraising. I'm curious if you recall on your journey, I'm also a, a first gen uh, student. Uh, I was a student athlete in college and I remember actually working the front desk of our athletics facility at Brown. It was called the, o the OMAC, the only Margolis Athletic Center. And then in hindsight, you know, everything had a name on it, right? I mean, you worked in facilities, so, you, yeah. you know, you could name a bench, you could name the wall, you could name uh, the locker room. And, and I just remember, you know, being a student athlete and like knowing that there were all these names on all these buildings or parts of buildings or rooms or lockers and really having no context for why that was or that somebody had given a million dollars. And as a result, that was part of the recognition or somebody had given $10,000. It was there a moment, maybe as you were in the facilities, um, part of the athletics sphere, where I'm sure you were either seeing names on buildings or wanting names on buildings that things started to click for you as it related to sort of what the business business of fundraising actually was. You know, the, the fundraising side came a little bit later on, but but I would say that, that there certainly had been very generous benefactors at Hofstra whose names are, in some cases, on several buildings, that it was very much what you just said. You, you realize that there are people that care enough about an institution like Hofstra uh, or the other institutions that, that I've served, uh, that they would be willing to invest in such a way that the university would, would honor them by naming that, that space that room, that building after them. So it certainly is part of the thing that I would say early on in the facility side of things, I was more subconsciously aware of it. And then later on, when I realized, wow, this is something I could do for a career in fundraising, it became even more clear, especially when I, when I got to a place like Fordham. And so you did a quick stint at ESPN uh, and then ultimately joined Fordham. And my understanding is at the intersection of athletics and fundraising, 
but also decided to pursue your MBA, which is relatively uncommon within the advancement leadership realm. Uh, I'm curious if that was something you intended on doing when you uh, accepted the role at Fordham um, and sort of what it was like, you know, balancing pretty intense day to day plus a pretty intense curriculum. Yeah, Fordham has a great part-time MBA program. I was lucky to go at night, uh, probably from the beginning of 2000, and I want to say 2003 through 2006. So just grinding it out six credits at a time, six credits per semester. Uh, I just realized it was a benefit uh, to being a full-time employee at a, a university like Fordham that I was able to go across the street. Uh, so it made for long days, but great days. And some of the best courses I took were uh, at Fordham in leadership and just these great, you know, these great different, it could be an article or, or, or books, but one of them was The Education of Cyrus by Xenophon. And it really focuses on how great leaders are first great followers. And, and it just flipped the switch up for me is that to, to be a great leader is, is to learn from others, to learn from other leaders, and then one day, you know, be in that role. And it also enforces that that leaders are in every position. It's not by title. It's it's how you act and how you make people better is really what I think leaders can be. But but the the whole process of getting the MBA was a, you know I was still single at the time and I could focus the amount of time needed to get both. And I would say I was probably even a more serious student um, in the Fordham uh, Graduate School of Business because you had people walking from you know Madison Ave from Midtown. You had people taking. Uh, subway up from Wall Street, and they weren't messing around. You know, they they were here to get their MBA and focus. It made me a better student. So it was an it was a good intensity that I learned as I was learning the business of fundraising. Um, you know, day in and day out. And uh, anything else stand out from that time? Um, you know, tools in the toolkit from the MBA that maybe um, uh, you'd want to share with the, the folks here. I think there's two things. One is just being a part of a team. You know, the, the MBA programs are known in many cases for that, that team approach, the collaboration, uh, understanding how to manage, uh, to, to really make sure you're bringing your value to the team, you know, and that, that teams don't want to really take lightly to people that are looking to, to uh, go the easy route or just check something off a box, really to, to bring your value and bring it every day, bring it to each project. Uh, and then the other part was just continued time management. You know, it's one thing to have time management between practices and workouts and, and travel. It's another thing to be earning a living, you know, and paying your bills and making sure that you're, you're advancing in all of the different things. So it was just continued evolution of, of my professional maturation. Uh, that was another good uh, part of my training early on in my career. Love it. And um, at, at that point, you were... I presume carrying a portfolio, really doing the fundraising work, getting the MBA, uh, and then you ultimately went down a path of athletics administration um, as an associate AD back at Hofstra. And I'm curious if that was sort of the goal you set out to achieve as part of the MBA or uh, if it just sort of organically um, happened along the way. It more so uh, happened along the way. I, I the MBA was, was, was the best degree that I could get at the time at a place like Fordham. Uh, but my dream when I was, again, going back to being a junior and senior in Hofstra, realizing that you could be, you know, ultimately perhaps an athletic director, that was probably my dream for, for a long time, at least. And when I was at Fordham, you know, I, I, I 
was able to get to Fordham because I volunteered. You know, I, I there was no job available. I reached out to a handful of New York City schools. Fordham was great about responding and saying, we don't have a position, but if you'd like to come in for an informational interview. And I didn't know a soul there. Uh, they, they took me in. And while I was there, spontaneously offered to work. Uh, I was working at a steakhouse at night and as a busboy, and so I could pay the bills. So getting to Fordham was really my way in to learn fundraising. And luckily, after a few months, they, they created a position for athletic fundraising. So a development officer for athletics, if you will. Were you literally, vol- were you literally volunteering every day? Well, I took uh, Fridays. I didn't come in, but I was Monday through Thursday, about nine to three. And it was a great experience. It, it was a way for me to test. Do I like this? You know, am I any good at it? And do they like me? It's got to be both. Right. It's got to be that win. I mean, yeah. But, you know, post MBA unpaid internship is uh, or, or sorry, uh, I guess I should say this was pre MBA. But like yeah. the unpaid internship to get the. Um, the foot in the door. I mean, that's, that's serious. I mean, is that even allowed anymore? Can we even have yeah. unpaid interns? I mean, I don't know. I probably not, you know, uh, I would have to talk to the HR team, but I, I looked at it as a way I had done a couple of years at facilities. I knew that wasn't my long-term fit. I had landed at ESPN, the magazine from the help of a college teammate realized after a few months working at ESPN is really cool, but it wasn't for me. Yep. And then when I came back to Hofstra briefly as a graduate assistant, I realized that marketing and promotions wasn't for me either. Um, I would say my, my, my last day at ESPN was the Friday before 9-11. Mm-hmm. And it, it, was a, it was a time in my life where, where as a young, I was probably was 23. And one of my best friends was killed in 9-11. One of my, my, my second cousin died in 9-11. So for some odd reason, it's almost counterintuitive. I was pulled to the city and I, I wanted to be at one of the New York City institutions. I wanted to be in New York during that time. Uh, maybe I wanted to be part of whatever was going to happen next after 9-11. And a lot of my friends were living in the city at the time that I grew up with or, or some of the college friends. But, but getting, to, getting to Fordham, the, the eagerness to offer something like that was really for me, not that I was desperate, but just an eagerness to learn, to find a place that could teach me. And I'll figure out how to pay the bills for the interim. That stuff right. works its way out, in my view. And then getting back to Hofstra, was really because Jack Hayes, who you probably know from his time at Brown, uh, Jack Hayes was a uh, was the AD at at Hofstra in 2004. And what I did was I I Frank McLaughlin, who was a longtime AD at Fordham, who's a, a, a big impact on my career at, for, at Fordham, is a absolute you know gem of a human being and, and a great uh, great person, great leader, uh, and just embodies everything that's great about Fordham. I remember him saying, you know, he called me Timmy. He said, Timmy, Jack Hayes back at Hofstra, one of our, one of my guys. And I remember emailing Jack from my Hofstra, from my forum account saying, congrats from a Hofstra baseball alum. And just naturally, Jack and I got to know each other. Uh, and one thing led to another where there was an opportunity in 06 to go back to Hofstra and pursue more of that, pursue that dream of being an athletic director. I love it. And um, you know, I think athletics is uh there are a lot of parallels between building a fan base, selling tickets, you know, somewhat transactionally, but there's also an intersection with fundraising and stewardship. Certainly um, the pace I think can be a little bit more rapid. The pressure certainly can be, you know, more intense um, just given the, the kind of seasonal cycle versus a 50 year donor life cycle in some cases, but 
Um, but you had a good run there. And I know it was a, it was a, a, a strong period of growth for Hofstra as you talked about that evolution into, um, you know, what it is today, uh, the continued evolution to becoming more residential and so forth. Favorite memories from that time back at the uh, alma mater? Well, there was, I was there almost seven and a half years. So there's a lot of great times. I, I got a chance to work with my best friend growing up in Manhasset, Jared Tinian, who's now still there. We both started the same same day, June 1st, 99, as athletic facility coordinators. Um, so getting to work with Jay was was great. Um, I, I think the, the, the second or the first, I mean, the, the second month I was there, Hofstra made it to um, the championship of the, of the CAA game. Unfortunately, they, they lost to UNC Wilmington that year. That was a great period of time. But I w- they, there were some great teams um, at Hofstra during that stretch. Men's and women's soccer, men's and women's lacrosse men's and women's basketball. Uh, the baseball team had some really great years uh, uh, in the mix there, more increasingly competitive, and maybe perhaps best of all was their softball program. So there's so many great experiences looking back. In 2012, so- softball got to the Super Regional against South Florida, and really, you know, it, it's, it's athletics at its best. The ball bounces a few different ways, and so, you know, Hofstra is getting to the College World Series uh, for the first time ever. So, there were some really great experiences there working for Jack and for Danny McCabe, who was his number two. And uh, really another way for me to grow. That's the time of my life where I was getting married and starting, you know, family with, with my wife, Kara. So a lot of, a lot of memories um, bringing, bringing the boys to some of the games before they even knew that they were at games, you know, right. Uh, but, but good stuff, almost a full circle in a way for me being a student athlete and seeing the administrators bringing their kids to games. And then I was being able to do that just a few years later. What um, was it like? Because you got there in in 06, I believe, in that role. On one hand, you've got a you've got a I'm sure there's a important connection between how the teams and how the program is doing and what that means for revenue and sponsorships and the business of college athletics. Mm -hmm. But on the other hand, you've got economic cycles to deal with and willingness to be sponsors either corporate wise, or even as an individual donor. So you get there during a very hot part of the economic cycle. And then the sort of uh, great recession happens and you've got uh, some pretty, uh, you know, major fallout pretty much all around the country. Um, And so I'm just curious if anything stands out sort of the alignment of how the teams were performing and your revenue outcomes, or if it was more about the macroeconomic cycle and what you all could do? Yeah, that's a great question. And it was always like anything else. It's usually a lot of, uh, it's, it's usually some version of all the above. Right. And so just personally, the roles I had at Hofstra, first the assistant AD for corporate relations, really focused going away from athletic fundraising and learning the business of corporate sponsorships and uh, finding what, what mattered to them and finding that intersection of, of what kind of package, what kind of uh, portfolio of, of sponsorship elements can we provide to them? Uh, that was really just another, another tool that I was able to get, you know, in, in my career, uh, building a team, then a year later becoming the associate AD for external. So external relations and leading ticket sales, ticket operations, sponsorships and athletic fundraising and marketing. So leading that team, a broader team for the first time in my career with some great people who I still keep in touch with, um, 
being their leader, being their manager, but also being their partner, you know, because at, at a Hofstra, it's a, it's a division one, great division one program. It's a mid-majors. So you have to be able to, you know, you're not going to be just standing in an ivory tower telling them what to do. You're, you're in there with them. You're in it, which is great. And um, that was really fun just learning that. And, and again, learning from Jack and Danny, Danny, a lot of the things, especially Danny teaching me some of the external pieces around sponsorships and how to build marketing and grassroots ticket sales and things of that nature. But then the Great Recession hits. We went away for my, um, my honeymoon, came back, and my mortgage company was out of business. You know, American Home Mortgage was out of business. Um, should I just keep powering through here, or do you want to listen to Reggie Bark? It's your now? call. Everybody has dogs at home who's listening, yeah. so we can edit it out, or else we can just roll with it. It's all good. Good. I'm trying to extend it out and see if it stops barking. But, um, but you know, the Great Recession piece, when we were – running our Hofstra golf classic. And uh, we had a number of foursomes just evaporate because they couldn't leave the office, you know, and that was the fall of what 2008 is right around the time. No, it was the summer of seven into, into 07. Um, Yeah. That was something where you realize there are certain things. And we just went through another case of that with the pandemic, right? You have to realize what you can control and what you can't. You know, and it's a great recession. We had a number of people that had to step back for a while, a number of people that lost significant life savings, uh, life, you know, accumulations of wealth, Bear Stearns and Lehman Brothers. These are uh, people that were very close to Hofstra and many other uh, universities. So it was tough for a while. And, And looking back, you realize that sometimes you don't even know how big it is when you're even that young in your career. You're just putting one foot in front of the other. And, you know, Bill Edwards would say at Hofstra with softball, play the next inning. You know, we have to play the next inning as best you can. And um, that's what we did. Uh, and a great run there. And then ultimately an opportunity to move into, uh, in a certain re- regard, move away from direct athletics work into more of a core fundraising role, which is not connected to your maybe aspirational dream of being a college AD. So somewhere along the way, um, you decided to get um, more on the advancement track. Yeah. You know, and a lot of times when we're in our career journeys and I hope I'm repaying the favor now to as many people as I can, you work with people you never realized you were going to work with. And, you know, that's just part of, of, you know, you meet people along the journey and, and Mike O'Neill for me, I worked with him. He joined Fordham a year or two after I did as the associate VP for, for development. And after I went to Hofstra, he went, uh, I think, in 08 to Villanova to be, you know, the, the VP for advancement there. And Mike, you know, Mike and Teresa were at, at our wedding, at Karen and I's wedding. We've remained very close through the years. Uh, there were a couple opportunities that either wasn't a, I wasn't a good fit for or I wasn't right for me uh, along the way. But there was an opportunity in the summer of 13. Uh, I actually remember my wife and I were out on the North Fork just by ourselves for a night or two. And I remember getting this email from Mike saying, are you interested? And I just handed it to Kara and I jumped in the pool. And she said, uh, and my wife's a Villanova alumnus. So it, it didn't hurt that it was her alma mater, but she said, Hey, if, if this might be the last chance and, and Kara was right, because Mike said, listen, this is a great opportunity. We're about to launch a $600 million campaign. He really was talking about Villanova in a really exciting way. And I said, no, and the next, I said no, and I was taking my oldest son Brady to the movies, the the, air, the movie Airplanes or Planes, 
cartoon. And um, I remember driving there and I parked and I got a text from Mike and he said, I'm, I'm just reaching out to you as a friend, not as someone who's trying to hire you, but I think you are making a big mistake and you might want to reconsider. And if you know Mike, that you're not surprised to get that kind of text because he he believes in what he believes in. And I am so grateful that he took the time to not give up on me in that moment. And uh, I even get a little emotional thinking about it because I wouldn't be sitting here talking to you right now if he didn't send that button, uh, send that text. And so that's how I got to Villanova. It was a whirlwind because our kids were uh, four and the twins were two and a half, but it was the best kind of whirlwind you could ever imagine. And uh, a great experience to move away from athletic fundraising and goes to some of the things you, you hear about when you talk about leadership and leaders, seeing things in other people before they might see it in themselves. That's been, that's been Mike for me that, you know, he's, he saw that I could be certainly maybe lucky enough to be an athletic director, but, but also maybe I could be a vice president for advancement someday. And I don't get to that opportunity at, at Marquette without Mike saying, why don't you at least give a shot at, at leading some of these major gift teams for our undergraduate colleges. And you couldn't have asked for a better time uh, to be part of a campaign at a place like Villanova at that time. I love it. That's a great story. And uh, we'll make sure to tag Mike uh, when we publish this so that he, uh, that he gets to hear that from you directly. And, um, and, you know, Villanova, it's got a special place in my heart. My first office mate, in, uh, I worked in investment banking for two years out of college in Chicago. And my office mate, Brian Doherty, was a Villanova alum. And um, he was just so passionate, as many of the Villanova alumni are. And so they were sort of a surrogate uh, uh, team of mine uh, ever since or have been ever since. And so um, y- y'all raised a lot of money, made a big impact uh, there. Uh, and then I guess along the way, I imagine, um, given the relationship with Mike uh, and, and what it sounds like is some real mentorship, you were probably, um, you know, I'd imagine at some point, you know, starting to talk about what's next and sort of what the path might be. And it sounds like in part he inspired you. I'm sure he wanted to keep you on the team, but also, uh, you know, maybe let you out of the nest uh, in, in a certain regard as well. You know, again, um, well, Mike probably want, you know, <laughs> Mike was great about always telling me and others, you know, you can be a vice president, you can do more, you know, it, uh, it, you know, the grass isn't always greener, but sometimes it, it, it's time to, to move on. And Mike's done that in his own career too, with American Ireland funds and Fordham and, and Villanova. So I think he, he understands sometimes for the right opportunities, it's important to, to move on. And um, yeah, that was, that was an opportunity there to, to, you know, follow, uh, follow some of his advice for a change. Right. <laughs> and so was, um, uh, Marquette, um, sort of a specific opportunity that piqued your interest. Was it right time, right place? Or did you get to a point where you started to feel like, all right, I need to kind of put my hat in that ring and, and start to explore what the leadership opportunities might be out there? I really wasn't looking at all. I wasn't thinking about being a vice president. I wasn't um, even thinking I was ready in that respect. I was really enjoying the time at Villanova, made great friends on and off campus. And, you know, Kara and the boys were happy. My, one of my friends from Hofstra was the lacrosse coach at Marquette, Joe Amplo. Um, he's still a good friend. And uh, Joe and Marquette was, were playing at, at Villanova. And I uh, texted him after the game, and it was a great game. Villanova won. 
Uh, and Joe said, hey, I, I you know, there's going to be an opening, he thinks. Would you, be, would you be okay if I put your name into the search firm? You know, and, and so that's, you know, ultimately how I, I got to Marquette uh, with, Mike's, with, with Joe's referral and a lot of somewhat in, a, in the best way, sleepless nights about, am I ready? Uh, do we mess with happy, you know, and, and, and go there. I had known about Marquette really just through the Big East and through, you know, the legendary Al McGuire. Uh, but I also, as I looked closer, you know, I, I felt a pull to Marquette that, that was a great opportunity. Certainly the leadership by Dr. Lovell, the, the mission, the Jesuit mission, um, Milwaukee, once you come to Milwaukee, you realize what a cool place it is. And, and it's in many ways, um, it's not Philadelphia, but Philadelphia in the early 2010, you know, was having a little bit of a renaissance and growth. I see that in Milwaukee right now. Yeah. If not, if, if it's not already happening, it's about to. And I really believe that. I, I think I've seen it once before and I think I see it again. So the closer you look at Marquette, you realize what there is. There's an incredible academic profile, the schools and colleges that it has, the level of research that they, they produce, the, the athletics in the Big East, and the way that they are increasingly and uh, partnering with, with Milwaukee, whether it's the Near West Side Partners or the way that Dr. Lovell and his wife, Amy, have helped to start an initiative called SWIM, Scaling Wellness in Milwaukee. There are so many things that Marquette has done in part of its heritage and is doing today that to me is really inspiring. And I just feel really humbled that uh, Dr. Lovell and, and others thought enough that they would offer me this role to be uh, the chief development officer at a very important time in Marquette's history. And I imagine when you took the role, uh, the campaign, which was in 2018, the campaign was at least in the either early phases or inaugural phase um, and similar uh, in a certain regard to when you joined Hofstra, uh, boom times economically for the most part. Uh, obviously, there could be regional nuances, but I think for the most part, boom times when you got there in 2018, which continue, continue. And then as you're thinking about launching the public phase, pandemic happens, uh, probably another moment of control, we can control, play the next inning, um, but got to a point where it looks like there's just tremendous momentum, um, given what you've been able, what had, what you had been able to do in the quiet phase. So why don't you just bring us up to speed on the campaign, kind of the, I don't know, where you were mentally a year ago versus, uh, you know, how you're feeling um, today. Uh, and then I definitely want to make sure that we reserve some time to talk about the future of work uh, as it relates to the sector. Yeah, you know, the campaign was, it is, was, was concepted and is a $750 million endeavor. Um, a, a very bold campaign for Marquette, not being in a campaign for over a decade. But as I've said many times, and my team would probably know what I'm about to say, it's rightfully bold for Marquette. You know, Marquette, it's, it's Marquette's time to take its rightful place uh, on the stage of, of the, the best uh, Catholic higher ed university, you know, institutions uh, in the country. And so this is a really exciting endeavor. We were getting ready to launch in October. Um, it probably took me a little longer to come to the realization that it just wasn't for many macro reasons the best time, the pandemic being one of them. Uh, but the, the just a lot of different things. We were coming into a presidential election that was taking a lot of mind share. We were coming into a time of, of, of social 
unrest and 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 discussions that was taking the interest you know rightfully away from launching a campaign so moving to the spring made a lot of sense moving to virtual made as much sense because what i didn't want to do was was wait any longer you know we got to the spring time to rise branded as time to rise the marquette promised to be the difference but also having the branding after easter and coming into the spring in many ways you know marquette has has a long-standing history of some great gifts uh, whether you think about the, the Eckstein family and many, many others, you know, the Burke scholars, Dick Burke, the founder of Trek Bicycles. There are so many names and families and institutions that have supported Marquette throughout its time. But there was an opportunity to widen the base and have somewhat of an awakening when it comes to philanthropy at Marquette that we just felt like we couldn't wait any longer. And so Time to Rise is now in the public phase, we are. I came in the to your question earlier. I, I arrived fall of, of 18, just into the third year of the campaign. Now we're coming to the end of the fifth year of the campaign, and we really feel good about where we stand. We launched at 450. We think we're going to close this fiscal year somewhere around 470, uh, and we're we're on pace with where we want to be right now because of the response. You know, Mike, again, Mike O'Neill taught me, we are the cattle, we, we are the facilitators, the connectors, the storytellers, but the heroes, if there are heroes in philanthropy, are the donors, the people that are choosing to to invest their dollars to make a difference and, and impact others, uh, that some, some whom they may never even meet. And uh, that's why this campaign, one of the reasons at least why it's such a exciting moment for Marquette and for our advancement team to be to be part part of. I saw in your initial post, or, or sorry, in your recent post about going live, you talked about going broad. Um, but what stood out to me, 50,000 donors who've already given, 42% of whom are first-time donors, and over 500 major donors of 100K or, or more. So I would imagine, I don't know, the top 100 of those 500 probably, or some percentage have been philanthropically connected and you sort of knew that they would be excited about the opportunity to step up and make an even bigger impact. But I'd be curious to get your perspective on numbers 400 to 500 or, or 475 to 500, the folks that maybe wouldn't have been on the campaign feasibility, the obvious, you know, for sure we can count on uh, that individual or that family for at least a hundred thousand, but maybe more of the, the surprise gifts or the people that have been inspired or that are stretching, um, if anything stands out to you about that pocket of the giving pyramid? Yeah, it's a great question. You know, sometimes you don't know until you get into the campaigns, right? But but we've already seen a 62% increase in campaign giving versus what immediately preceded. You know, the five years immediately preceding this campaign to the first five years of this campaign, it's a 62% leap um, and almost a 50% leap in major donors. And of those major donors, like you said, 60% are new. And so I, what I think we are seeing, and this is somewhat anecdotal, we'll continue to dive into some of the numbers, is there haven't been, there were there was certainly assertive asking happening before I arrived and before this campaign started. But when you're in a campaign, there's just a notch of urgency that, that increases. And uh, I think also having some, some additional layers of campaign infrastructure. The feasibility study is, is a tried and true version but then having a campaign executive committee and having each of those campaign executive committee chairs that are chairing regions and schools and colleges and athletics, young alumni, annual giving, et cetera, parents, 
you start to build some depth into your campaign ecosystem. And those people are helping, all of those volunteers are helping you widen that net. And they're not just widening the net at the, at the gifts at any level, but we are, you know, focusing on that six figure plus. That's, that's our version of the ground game when it comes to getting to 750. You know, we know that that $100,000 gift to 500,000, if you will, you know, pledged over those period of years is in many ways going to help us drive to where we need to go in that 750. I love it. Well said. Um, so it sounds like thinking of the volunteers as uh, almost a, an extension of your major gift team, as opposed to just being participation driven has been a key part of the strategy so far. Yeah, that's, that's a big part of the campaign is to start to get people more educated, informed, and engaged into what campaigns are at Marquette. We, we have not been in one for over a decade. And so bringing that back to the fore with, with the Marquette community was really important. So having these, these campaign committees really ends up being uh, a big part of, of the campaign. Well, as you are launching the campaign virtually remotely in April, um, you also like all of us as leaders are thinking about what am I going to do with my team? People are starting to ask you, when do I get to go back to the office or as vaccinations occur or restrictions are lifted? You know, what are we going to do, Tim? What are we going to do, Tim? I was getting a lot of those questions too. Um, and I was just struck by the comment that you made in response to one of the posts on LinkedIn. Uh, and I'll just read it again. Like I did at the beginning, we are redesigning our on-campus home and maintaining a flexible work environment built on trust, collaboration, and a continued focus on performance in service of Marquette. A lot of talk, we've, we've all talked a lot about going remote and what that was like and adjusting to Zoom and reaching donors in this way. And can you make big asks on Zoom or not? And so we've did a lot of those conversations. We've done a lot of those. Um, we've not done a lot of these conversations, which is what next? And I think just like the pandemic hit really fast, it seems like recognizing that globally there's still a lot of issues. The lifting of restrictions has uh, resulted in an almost equally fast back to normal, depending on your region and, and other factors. And so what does it mean for you to maintain a flexible work environment built on trust, collaboration, and a continued focus on performance? And was it difficult to come to that conclusion? Yeah, I, I don't think it was difficult. I think we, you know, you follow what works for you in, in your particular case. So, so my 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 view on this is um, is my own personal one. I'm not saying that others should do it or shouldn't do it. Uh, I think everyone, every leader, every institution has to, you know, kind of manage what their their culture is. For for Marquette, we had already before the campaign begun as a university been uh, doing a space study. But even before that space study was complete, for me in our administration build, building, Zilber Hall, I thought we were too spread out. And so we were already in the process of, of shrinking our footprint, uh, not only because, but, but in part informed by a great book I read called Culture Code, which if you're familiar with that book, it talks about collisions, you know, and proper collisions uh, in the workplace, being close enough in that proximity where you're gonna have those impromptu conversations, strategic updates that are just happening at the water cooler in the door in the doorway. But we were too spread out to even have those types of productive collisions. Once the pandemic hit and we realized there are ways to utilize potentially Zilber Hall 
for other things. And we're still as a university, that's not my decision, but Marquette will decide how best to use the space that we have uh, given back to the university. It's not necessarily our space, but we are no longer using it uh, on the third floor of Zilber. Now we have an opportunity to redesign our side of the fourth floor of Zilber Hall, which is our home, which will be our home in a flexible environment. And what that means is that no one has an office. Uh, no one has, um, no one is working full-time remote. We are, we will, once that redesign is complete, we will be in the office largely, but have the flexibility to be at home as appropriate. And again, that's why I wrote it. Uh, I didn't necessarily plan for you to put that uh, LinkedIn post out there. I was re just reacting to what I believe and what we've been doing. And I believe it starts with trust. Uh, and not to say that people that don't believe what I believe aren't trusting their folks, but for me, for this to work for me means I have to trust my team, uh, certainly our leadership team and all, all line that we're hiring people to do a, to do a job, to, to, to have a uh, meaningful career at Marquette in service to Marquette and to perform at a high level. And I think uh, since we have seen some of the redesign and since some of the colleagues have been coming back to the office, working in spaces where the redesign isn't happening, they're really excited. They're excited because we're all going to be together. You know, when we are there, we're all going to be together. When we're not there and we want to have uh, work from home, we can be quiet and work from home and, and focus on whether it's deep work, quote unquote, or other things that we need to do, rattle through a list of phone calls, you know, have handwritten notes, or if there's just other reasons why working from home makes sense for some, uh, we will have that flexibility so long as performance is there, so long as the service to Marquette stays at the high level that it should. Um, and what it does also is it requires us to have a culture that's really strong. And it has to be a culture built on what we have in advancement at Marquette is built on the pillars of service, collaboration, and grit, or grit being that Angela Duckworth version of passionate persistence that we're, you know, gonna, it's not always going to be easy. And we have to have that noble pursuit of something greater than ourselves. So if you have a strong culture, and you have ways in the office and, and at sometimes social functions or service functions in and around Milwaukee, where we can be together and stay connected, then it doesn't necessarily matter all the time where you're sitting when you're doing your work. It's more about the quality of the work and how you're doing it in a connected way within the department and for Marquette. And we've proven in the last year to me that we can work in a remote environment. We've proven in years prior that we can work in the office environment with some cases of remote for regional offices and, and things like that, which I think you referred to. Now the next challenge, and I think the challenge is a great opportunity, is to prove we can work within a flexible environment. Right. I think that's really, really well said. And, um, you know, we've been having some of the same considerations and, you know, at, at our, with our team. And uh, at the same time, I do feel like, and, and part of why I wrote that I was concerned that higher education might miss this moment, miss this opportunity to become more flexible and specifically advancement offices is because when you think about most of higher education, especially higher education that has been making the case for, uh, in, in a lot of cases, why online or, or why residential experiences could still matter. Maybe some of that same culture code density of connections on a physical campus uh, at a time when a lot of people have been questioning costs and so forth. All of that we're not going to get into, but but I think because there's just a, this inherent, it's about campus. You work in facilities. It's about the facilities and the experience. Um, 
that is sort of the polar opposite from I'm going to work from my bedroom with a ring light and a, and a, and a microphone. Um, and it, and it makes me feel like that while for, for, for residential campuses, so much of the experience is centered around the physical built environment, the space. But when you think about remote work and advancement, I feel like major gift officers have been doing remote work or, or, you know, more so than almost anybody else at a college for decades. Right. And, and so in a certain regard, we've always been remote checking in, you know, via the phone when that was the only way that we could via email when that emerged. And so in a certain regard, it's like, this is the most remote office at most colleges. uh, Yet um, when you're not traveling to meet a donor, at least historically, you better be at that desk or you needed to be in the cube. And I I just wonder, um, as a sector, uh, if, if that changes. Yeah. Well, time will tell how it, how it changes and to what extent. Uh, I, like I said, I think we're going to learn a lot about the flexible environment. And one of the things that I did say a lot and, and will continue to say with our team is that I don't have all the answers. You know, this is not going to be perfect, but I'm okay. I mean, if we're in fundraising, we have to be, we, we are about that continued pursuit of excellence. It's never about being, you know, perfect. And so this is an opportunity to really provide uh, an in-office experience that I think is even could be even more optimal. And and why I say that is because instead of being back in your cube or your office, you can be in a collaborative space near maybe where our kitchen is when you first walk in, or you can be in a quiet workspace. If you just want to be in the office and you want to have a quiet workspace, you can be in a conference room that you can either reserve or come first come first serve. So there'll be opportunities for people to have these really dynamic collisions and, and, and productive work environments without having the, the cube or the traditional cube or, or, or office. And it also gives people the freedom and the trust, the empowerment to say, well, I'm going to work from home, you know, this day or part of this day. You know, I was in the office most of the day today and I came home for this for a few reasons, but, but, um, and I still have to relocate once. But we, we have this opportunity, I think. And, and what it also does, it's not just about advancement, right? We are, we are members of a university community. Returning the third floor to the university, is, I guarantee is going to give Marquette an opportunity to utilize that space for our students, for our, for our faculty, for our staff in an even more beneficial way. So as we are stewards of university resources, it's not just the human and the, the, the operating dollars, but it's the space you take. And I'm grateful that we still have a great home in a very centrally invisible location because I do believe in the importance and the value of advancement on college campuses like Marquette, but as appropriate. And I think this is going to be somewhat of an experiment, but I think one that we've been reckoning for for some time, at least from my, from my view. Right, I'm going to ask you two more questions on a related uh, note. One is travel and the fir- future of travel. You just touched on um, the space requirements and the footprint. Um, we've heard a lot of folks considering, you know, right now is budget season. So is my, you know, allocation of plane tickets and hotels per gift officer what it was in 2019 or was it what it was in 2020, which was almost nothing or um, was it, is it somewhere in between? I, I wonder, and I don't want to put you on the spot too much, but, um, either, you know, within Marquette specifically, or as you trade notes with peers, uh, in, in the sector, how, 
uh, you expect travel to play out, uh, especially in the context of a campaign where you're trying to go deeper into the giving pyramid than ever before? Yeah. Well, I think if you look at it, if you step back and look at it from just a slightly different way, and this is not to sidestep your question, but if you think about travel, why wouldn't you want, in some cases, to set up, instead of that introductory phone call, to have an introductory video call? Um, you could also say that maybe for the first 20 minutes of that intro call, maybe you have a phone call or a couple email exchange beforehand, but that first visit in some cases, not all, could be on Zoom or on Teams or on Google. And why wouldn't we think about inclu including a faculty member, a staff leader, a dean, an AD, a coach, you know, maybe even the president, if it's for 10 minutes, 15 minutes, half hour, and then the, the second half is more getting to know the donor. You know, some introverts would rather start with substantive conversation and get to small talk later. Some extroverts are really desiring getting back in the office, but also the, the in-person events. So I think there's something for everyone here. I think the video piece is here to stay, but I think we have to be smart about how we incorporate it. But there are a lot of values, a, lo a lot of um, value add, and we have some great deans. Why wouldn't a dean want to be on a couple of video calls? And if it really hits, well, then we got to go to Seattle when we have to right. get on the plane. And, and by the way, when we get to Seattle, we're more informed as to how we structure not only our time, but the, but the prospects and the donors and, and how we think about events. Should we have a leadership dinner in Boston or should it be, should it be something larger at the head, you know, at, at the, the head of the Charles, yeah. you know, because of the interest areas that we have with our alumni, parents and friends in those areas. So I think, you know, we have to follow the logic a little bit. We have to test things and there's going to be some zoom and, 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 teams fatigue. But I think, you know, we would be smart to continue to try to find ways to, you know, move this into our, our, our MO. And yes, if that helps universities, you know, allocate budgets accordingly, then, then it's a win-win. Well, I, I love, you know, Tim, we talk a lot about the donor experience. How can we improve the donor experience? Let's start with the donor. Let's not start with what's best for us. And, and, and hopefully we can shape the right balance going forward. But I think, the examples you just gave, then it's not about Zoom versus a plane ticket. It's about how can we make the best donor experience? And odds are the president, those deans, that faculty member, the coach are not getting on a plane with anybody for a discovery visit. But if there's a Zoom link away and you can coordinate it that internally, I mean, that just sounds to me as a donor, like a much better experience, more efficient experience, more judicious use of funds. I don't necessarily need somebody to fly out to Seattle the first time to meet me. Um, have you had any experiences like that with faculty or with coaches or with the president over the last year where you feel like it's, it's wowed the donor, maybe even, you know, way beyond what you could have done in a traditional in-person experience? Well, I, I think of, there's a few things and, and I'll say I'm, I'm looking forward to getting back on the road more regularly. I'm looking forward to being in person at basketball games and, and seeing Marquette, you know, win Big East championships and, and go into, you know, the Sweet 16 and beyond and win, win great games. I'm really looking forward to that. But, but yeah, there are some great examples of having a um, – we have a, a, a webinar series this past year called Beyond MU. And – not all of them, but some of those panels, you can have people from all over the world on a panel at the same time from San Francisco to London, or 
the panel is a, is a is a group of faculty from Marquette, but the people watching are from all over the world, and in some cases, it's both. So why wouldn't we want to do that? And why wouldn't we want to, if we say what well, you know, if if we are really here to serve, and if we're really here to collaborate. And if we're really here to, to be this passionate, persistent, and, and persevering group, then we have to see, we have to be brave enough to see what works, and we have to be brave enough to try different things. And this is not necessarily a big leap. It's just utilizing technology that we've learned over the last year that works. And it's, it does so in a way that I think is, is a, a nice variety to the in-person events. Yeah. And by the way, the in-person events, there's great tradition at Marquette for our homecoming and reunions, and National Marquette Day is a is an international model, you know, that we are really proud of, of these in-person and virtual events that happen all the time. But I think there's a lot of great things that we can do, whether it's beyond MU or, or other events that people have really responded well to. Let's talk a little bit about the future of hiring in the sector, especially in the context of remote work. You know, one of the things that I've talked about with, with some of your peers is, um, if you, if you want to meet your alumni where you are, one argument would be if we were starting our org chart from scratch, post-pandemic, post-universal adoption of Zoom, post-people getting more comfortable working without sort of boss, the boss staring over the shoulder, if you will, we might say something like, okay, Marquette alumni, number one city, Milwaukee, number two, Chicago, number three, Minneapolis, four, New York, five, Madison, six, Washington, D.C. We should come up with some ratio. Let's call it a thousand to one or something like that. And we'd say, okay, there are 1,500 Marquette alumni in the San Francisco Bay Area. We should have 1.5 fundraising FTEs. I'm making this not, you know, 1,000 to one ratio up. We've got 1,100 Marquette alumni in Boston. We've got 900 in Phoenix. You're one of those institutions where you, the long tail of cities where you have over 500 alumni is real. Yep but you probably don't have people embedded in those cities. Could you see that happening uh, someday or too early to say? Well, I think it's probably a little bit of both. I think I could see that happening and someday is very much still cloudy. Yeah. You know, I think we have some version of that now. You know, we have a, a colleague on the West Coast. We have a colleague in the Northeast in, in, that covers Boston to Philadelphia. And we have a colleague in DC that covers, you know, the, the Mid-Atlantic down through the Carolinas. And we have a team in Chicago you know, that are not campus-based. The, the, the thing we have to think about, I think, as advancement leaders is the institutional knowledge of the officers that we have right now. We have a great team at Marquette. One of our great teams at Marquette is our principal giving team, and they have a collection of probably over 100 years of experience. And so while they might be Milwaukee-based, they're going to be traveling the country and, ha and have these long-standing relationships with these donors. So it's not a, I, I don't look at it as a switch that you flip. I think in any organization, you have to look at what your org chart is, find the best positions for the best people. And there's always going to be that productive tension, I think, between school and college fundraisers, regional fundraisers, principal gift fundraisers, and then obviously our annual giving and individual giving teams that are casting a wider net. There always has that, that collection of uh, of, of not tension, but it, it is in a way a, a productive tension around the org chart. So I think we'll see more of that rem remote or regional frame, but not at the expense of longstanding talent that, that has great institutional knowledge. 
Well said, Tim. And uh, our time has flown by today. And I really appreciate you sharing your perspective uh, and uh, the energy and and excitement at Marquette is real. I I have to ask, are you hiring? And if people listening want to be in touch with you, I know you're quite active on LinkedIn. Uh, Is that the best channel or what else would you recommend? LinkedIn is great. I, I do check on LinkedIn a lot. Um, that's the way that I've kept connected with, with you. I, I would say we are hiring. We're hiring for some select positions. Uh, we just hired a position in Northeast Regional, uh, which is, is a great position. And we do have a couple other positions that are open. Um, I think it's an exciting time to be with Marquette. Why wouldn't I, right? After this hour that you just heard, you can, you can understand the reasons why. But we are hiring, and I will continue to try to beat the drum for our great our great university on LinkedIn. So if people are looking to connect with me, that's a great way to do it. I'd encourage you to do so. Uh, Tim is a strong leader with a big vision for where they can go, uh, and, and uh, we really enjoy your perspective, Tim. Thank you for making time as we all try to play the next inning. Uh, and so with that, I will uh, thank Tim, Vice President of University Advancement, at Marquette uh, University. Brent signing off from the home office here in Rhode Island. Take care.